This is episode 23 of the Sugar Mamas podcast, and today I get to speak with Frank Martin, who's the Director of Research at JDRF, and also Dr. Michael Haller, who is a Professor and Chief of UF Pediatric Endocrinology and the Principal Investigator of the University of Florida TrialNet Clinical Center. Today, Frank is going to be talking to us about T1 Detect, and Mike is going to be talking to us about TrialNet. Both T1 Detect and TrialNet are screening processes which test for the autoantibodies that may put you at risk for developing type 1 diabetes in the future. So if you're a parent with type 1 diabetes or you have a child with type 1 diabetes and you're wondering if your children or perhaps your other non-T1D children are at risk for developing type 1, then this episode is for you. I want to read directly from the T1 Detect website and the TrialNet website just to give you a quick synopsis of what these two processes are like. About T1 Detect, directly from their homepage on the website, it says, T1 Detect, JDRF's screening education and awareness program, will arm you with the information you need before and after getting screened for T1D autoantibodies. Until now, T1D symptoms and a diagnosis often come out of the blue. Today, families can use testing to detect T1D early so they can plan and prepare. And from the TrialNet website, it says, TrialNet is an international network of leading academic institutions, endocrinologists, physicians, scientists, and healthcare teams at the forefront of type 1 diabetes research. We offer risk screening for relatives of people with T1D and innovative clinical studies testing ways to slow down and prevent disease progression. Our goal is a future without T1D. You're going to learn a lot more about these tests from both Frank and Mike. And you're also going to learn about clinical trials that are running right now that you or your children can participate in if you should test positive for any of the autoantibodies that put you at risk for developing type 1. It's a lot to take in, but this episode is so informative, and I think it's so encouraging to know that there's so much research and so many clinical trials going on right now to help prevent and delay the onset of type 1. All right, let's sit back and listen to what Frank and Mike have to tell us. Enjoy. You're listening to the Sugar Mamas Podcast, a show designed for moms of type 1 diabetics. Here you'll find a community of like-minded women who are striving daily to keep their kids safe, happy, and healthy while navigating the ever-changing world of type 1. I'm your host and fellow T1D mom, Katie Roseborough. Welcome and enjoy the show. Before we get started, I need you to know that nothing you hear on the Sugar Mamas podcast should be considered medical advice. Please be safe, be smart, and always consult your physician before making changes to the way you manage type 1 diabetes. Thanks. Everybody, I am here with Frank Martin today and Dr. Michael Haller. And I just have lots of questions for them about T1 Detect and TrialNet, which I know a lot of our listeners have questions about. They're very curious about what it is. So before we jump in, though, I always like my guests to introduce themselves. Frank, why don't we start with you? Just tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and what's your connection to type 1 diabetes? Sure. I'm Frank Martin. I have been working as a scientist at JDRF for about seven years now. 
I'm a PhD scientist in pharmacology, and I primarily manage the drug development areas of the organization. And more recently, I've taken on management of the screening program of the organization. And up until maybe two years ago, I didn't have a personal connection to T1D until my cousin was diagnosed last February at the age of 50. Oh, wow. 50. Yeah. Was he misdiagnosed? I'm just curious. Yeah, of course he was misdiagnosed yeah. um, for maybe six months. Hmm. They thought he was type two. Mm-hmm. And despite having a PhD scientist in the family who works at JDRF, it took a long time for me to convince my family that this was a T1D diagnosis, but he had all the classic symptoms, you know, very, very dramatic weight loss, thirst, uh, flu-like symptoms. It just was classic. Hmm. And uh, finally, they got him properly diagnosed about six months later. Wow. He's doing great. He's doing great now. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Yeah. All right, Mike, introduce yourselves. Yeah, go ahead. Thank you for having me on. Um, So I'm Mike Haller. I'm a pediatric endocrinologist, and I focus most of my work in type 1 diabetes prevention, prediction, and hopefully one day reversal. I'm trained as a a pediatric endocrinologist. I take care of patients, but spend most of my time doing uh, immunotherapy studies, uh, trying to move move therapeutics from the bench to the bedside in a research way uh, with a long-term goal of being able to apply these things in the clinical world. So I'm I'm very eager to help us move the idea of of screening from uh, being a research tool which has largely been into something that we can offer out in the general population uh, when we have therapies that can meaningfully affect the natural history of the disease. Mm-hmm. Thank you. We're going to start with talking a little bit about T1 Detect. I So there are so many families out there who already have a child with type 1 diabetes, and they have other children as well. And they're very curious to know, are my other children at risk for developing type 1? And then we have a lot of parents who have type 1 diabetes themselves with children or maybe in the family planning stage, and they are wondering if their children or future children are at risk for developing type 1 diabetes. So Frank, tell us a little bit about what T1 Detect is. Sure, sure. So T1 Detect is a recently launched program by JDRF. We launched in December of this past year. And really, it was to address the gap in identifying people at risk for type 1 diabetes in the general population. Mm -hmm. So mentioned people who have family members with the disease or people who have the disease themselves. And to date, those people have been supported by TrialNet, which, which Mike will talk about, where people who have a family history of type 1 diabetes can participate in this research program called TrialNet to identify if they are at risk for the disease monitor them after they determine the risk status, and then put them into clinical trials. Now, that only captures, you know, about 10, 10 or 15% of the population who have a real family history of the disease. Mm-hmm. Upwards of 85 or 90% of people who are diagnosed with type 1 diabetes do not have that family history. And they wouldn't know about type 1 diabetes because they're not in the family, right? Mm-hmm. So we wanted to address that gap. We want to make, first, people aware of what type 1 diabetes is in the general community. So, T1 Detect has, has a maybe three pillars. One is education of the community about what is T1D, what are the signs and symptoms of upcoming T1D, and why it would be important to screen someone for T1D risk. Second is the ability to actually test yourself for the risk of T1D. And what we do is we have a company that we're working with that will provide an at-home test for three of the of the major autoantibodies for type 1 diabetes. You do the test at home, you send it in, and then they tell you your autoantibody status. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a sort of snapshot. This isn't definitive that you have T1D risk. You need to, with that information, follow up with your medical doctor. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And we can talk about ways to ways that people who test positive in T1 detect can follow up. We'll talk about that maybe a little later. Mm-hmm. The third the program is really trying to educate the general medical community about the same. What is T1D? What is T1D risk? Why would you screen people uh, for their risk? And what can you do with those people when you find someone who's at risk status? So now in the United States, there's really no established clinical care guidelines for what do you do with someone who's in the at-risk places like trial that have established this. They've been doing this for years where they're expert in monitoring those people who are at risk. And then there's other research-based programs here in the United States and abroad where investigators are specifically looking at the general population and developing ways to continue to monitor those those people who are in the at-risk setting. We're trying to take that expert opinion and flow it out into the general medical community just so they have some draft guidelines to work on if they encounter someone who's at risk and maybe don't have a way to immediately funnel those people to something like TrialNet. Mm-hmm. Goal there would be in, in the future to have proper clinical care guidelines established so that the medical community at large here in the United States understands what to do with someone in the at-risk setting. Okay. And T1 Detect is a is a kit that people can order and it's sent to their home, and they can test right there, right in their home. That's correct. So that's, I think that's comforting to a lot of people because avoiding any type of labs, um, especially with young children, is probably ideal. But what does the process look like for families who are, are looking to order this test? So basically, you'd go online either to the JDRF, link out to, to T1 Detect, mm-hmm. that website with you afterwards, and you have a choice. You can order a kit that you would pay for. Uh, it's $55 plus some taxes for the, for the kit that tests for the three three of the autoantibodies. They'll send that kit to you at home. If you can't afford the $55, there's a patient assistance fund that will bring the cost down to $10. You just have to ask for it. But that's an option also when you're ordering. You receive the kit at home. It comes in a little box. I'm sorry, I don't have one here. That has a Lancet, a Band-Aid, a, a alcohol swab, and a little cardboard piece of paper with four circles on it. You clean and prick your finger and then squeeze blood onto those four drop, uh, four spots. Let it dry, put it back in this little plastic bag and send it to the company. Mm-hmm. And then in a few short weeks, they'll process it, get their results and notify you. They don't just send you the results. They'll notify you that your results are available. Okay. You have to go to the website, see your results, and they'll tell you if you're positive for any of those three autoantibodies above a certain value that is set for you know, positive and negative. Okay. If you are positive or, or your loved one is positive, they'll call you. So you're not just reading the information, um, but there is a good bit of information there about what this means. Mm-hmm. You're encouraged to follow up with your actual physician or a specialty physician to explain the results further. But someone from ena- enables the company that does the testing for us, they'll call you to be able to answer some of your questions. Okay. So, and you said if somebody did get a positive result, they would usually know that within the first a few weeks. It's, it's a few short weeks. I think our turnaround now is like under two or three weeks. Okay. So if a family member tests positive for any of the autoantibodies, what should the next steps be for them? Absolutely. Talk to a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. This is something you probably shouldn't sit on. Mm-hmm. Like I said, this is not a definitive diagnosis of T1D risk. Mm-hmm. There are certain idiosyncrasies about the test, your autoantibody status can change over time. Depending on your age, you might be at higher risk or lower risk. 
And you certainly need to have a confirmatory autoantibody test, Mm -hmm. be using a different type of test. What we're recommending to people right now is if they show up positive through T1 Detect, they go to TrialNet and they can have their confirmatory testing done at Mm TrialNet where they find out if they are like really positive and need to be monitored further. I think that's that's a great partnership between JRF, T1 Detect, and the TrialNet organization. Okay. So, Mike, why don't we move on to you? And I want you to tell us a little bit about the TrialNet testing. So somebody who perhaps did the T1 Detect kit at home, tested positive for one or more of the autoantibodies. Now they're coming to you. Uh, they're for, you know talking to the doctor, of course, but then perhaps moving on to TrialNet to kind of take this one step further. So what is TrialNet and how does it differ from T1 Detect, or the testing at least? So the type 1 diabetes trial net is an NIH-funded, National Institutes of Health-funded trial collaborative with sites all over the U.S., Canada, Europe, and Australia with a singular goal of helping to figure out how we can ultimately prevent type 1 diabetes. And what our network is really uniquely set up to do is to identify folks who are at really high risk for progressing to type 1. And historically, we've done that through autoantibody testing of first and second degree relatives of somebody who already has type 1. And as, as Frank very nicely pointed out, while that's a lot of people, it's still actually a minority of the overall population who's going to get type 1 diabetes because less than 5 to 10% of newly diagnosed patients actually have a strong family history. And so um, we serve a very important purpose, but we don't capture everyone and and it's one of the reasons why I think it's time for us to start having these collaborative um, situations where you know research entities like Trialnet can work with with other entities, philanthropic groups, community service groups like JDRF and and others. And so the 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 way this works now is to standardly be screened in Trialnet. You do have to have a family member. Um, with type 1 first. So if you're coming to TrialNet as a new person. However, we now know from many years of, of, of research that if you have autoantibodies, unfortunately, your risk for developing type 1 diabetes is the same as anybody else's, whether you do have a family member with type 1 or not. And so we, we essentially now have a backdoor into TrialNet screening, being that if you come to us with antibodies detected on any other assay, you're now eligible for TrialNet screening. Mm-hmm. And so exactly as Frank said, if a family chooses to use T1 Detect as their you know, initial entree into being screened because they're curious or because um, maybe they do have a family member with type 1, but they, for whatever reason, wanted to use that kit versus doing a trial net screen, which just to promote trial net, we, we have uh, home kits as well that can be done the same, same sort of way. We can then do a second test in trial net to see if it confirms what was, um, uh, what was identified through the, the T1 detect assay. And it's really critical to point out that the assays and the way we check for the antibodies are different. It's not a black or white yes or no answer, unfortunately. And, and many families sort of see it as that and, and understandably want it to be that way. You know, do I have risk or do I not? Where we are in the science is not such that we can be that definitive yet. Certainly, if people have multiple autoantibodies confirmed on multiple different assays, then unfortunately, we say they have what's called now stage one diabetes and their lifetime risk of progressing to needing insulin is very, very high. But if you have a single antibody or you have antibodies that don't confirm in both assays, then the risk is actually probably still quite low. And so a lot of what we have to do with these programs as we roll them out is help families understand, frankly, help doctors and scientists understand, because many of them don't have the same you know, level of, of using these, these assays on a daily basis, what the risk really is when they get a result back. Mm-hmm. Um, we've already had a number of situations where families have done T1 Detect and then done trial net screening and gotten disparate 
results, and that's going to continue to happen. And that's okay. We just need to be able to communicate to them what that means and help them um, stay part of the family because the, the, the long-term goal is, again, to keep families engaged in research and screening because we know that by doing so, the likelihood of them developing you know, uh, life-threatening diabetic ketoacidosis, if unfortunately a child is going to develop type 1, is exceedingly low if they're followed up in one of these studies. And it also offers us the opportunity to give them uh, the chance to participate in prevention studies that'll get us closer to cure. So for all those reasons, I think, you know, we need to keep doing these collaborative efforts between T1 Detect, TrialNet, JDRF, and, and other efforts that are out there in the community to screen. Absolutely. So I just want to make sure I understand correctly. T1 Detect, really anybody can order the kit. Um, it doesn't ha- You don't have to have a family member with type 1, which both of you brought up a really good point of most, a lot of people that get type 1 don't have a family history. It seems that it's strongly linked to autoimmune disorders, but even then, that's not a guarantee that somebody in the family had some sort of autoimmune issue. Um, so T1 Detect, anybody who's curious or interested um, or wondering can order the test. With TrialNet, however, you have to have a family member with type 1 in order to get tested, correct? That's right, with the one caveat that if you have an antibody detected anywhere else, your doc ordered it through your you know local lab, Quest or LabCorp, and you came back with antibody, or you did T1 detect and had antibody, then you also can be screened in TrialNet. Okay. So you mentioned the clinical trials that are going on uh, with TrialNet, and for those who test positive with any of the autoantibodies, can you tell us a little bit about those? I'm sure there's multiple ones. Are there different levels? Like if if someone only tests positive for one autoantibody, are there clinical trials for them to enter into versus people who might have three, four, five of the autoantibodies. Yeah, thanks for that question. So definitely, we're we're trying to offer opportunities for people to participate in the research process and hopefully provide them with direct benefit along the entire spectrum of risk. So we have studies that are sort of natural history studies where we just follow patients when they have a single antibody. Um, we're starting to offer prevention studies for folks who have two antibodies but still have normal glucose tolerance. So we have a, an open study right now using the drug hydroxychloroquine, which uh, got a lot of press, of course, uh, because of, of the uh, potential applications of COVID. There's clear data that it doesn't help in COVID, but there's actually a very good uh, rationale for why it might help in uh, treating type 1 diabetes. It's, it's more commonly used actually to treat other autoimmune diseases already. That's what it's FDA mm-hmm. uh, indication is for. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a very nice study for folks who are of moderate risk, you know, have multiple antibodies, but still um, normal glucose function. And that study is ongoing now. And again, you, you would never know you might be eligible for such a study if you don't get screened first because you know, pre-type 1 diabetes is largely silent. Mm-hmm. And that's the biggest challenge I think we have is getting families to participate, to be screened so that we can put them in these studies, find out what works or doesn't work, and then be able to translate it into, you know, into real, real therapeutics for patients. So that's the, the current open prevention study we have. And then we have a number of studies that are uh, sort of in the pipeline that were ready to open, but then got put on hold because of this thing that's happened in the last year called COVID-19. What? Um, no, I'm <laughs> fortunately, now with vaccinations rolling out um, and just you know this week, um, seeing approval for the 12 to 15-year-olds, the, the future is looking quite bright that the, the, uh, the light at the end of the tunnel is getting closer and that we will we'll be able to offer these studies. Uh, but admittedly, you know, our studies for uh, children and adults who are in what we call late stage two diabetes, so they have multiple antibodies and they already have some abnormal glucoses, but they don't quite need insulin yet. Typically, the drugs we're trying to use in that stage are a little bit more aggressive. They are more immunomodulatory and therefore they do have some um, risks, although 
you know, reasonable people could disagree about how easy it is to mitigate those risks. And so we, we kind of had to put those studies on pause during the peak of COVID. But we're, we're definitely very, very close to relaunching several studies in that space. Um, studies with drugs like rituximab or abatacept, which have previously shown as single agents that they could uh, preserve beta cell function in newly diagnosed patients. Hmm. Prevention studies planned with a drug called antithymocyte globulin, mm-hmm. um, which my group and then the trial net larger group showed worked very nicely to preserve beta cell function in new onsets. And recently there was a study um, with a drug called galimumab, um, which is an FDA approved drug to, uh, to treat rheumatoid arthritis in, in kids as young as two. Um, that worked very nicely, again, in new onsets that we hope to study in the late prevention space. So we have quite a number of tools um, in the toolbox uh, that, that unfortunately have been locked away for the last uh, year, um, but we're eager to take out and, and start studying. Yeah. Is there an age limitation for, oh, I'm sorry, Frank, did you want to? I was going to just add, I, I have to point out, if it weren't for TrialNet, we wouldn't have prevention studies for type 1 diabetes. Mm. They handedly have driven that effort. Mm-hmm. And it's because of them, we have drugs that may soon be approved mm-hmm. for delay of, of actual T1D insulin dependence. Mm. Yeah, thanks for that, Frank. I, I didn't mention what we probably our most exciting observation from that population over the last decade was a study using teplizumab um, or anti-CD3, um, which is to date the first drug ever to show that we really can delay mm. um, progression from stage two to stage three diabetes. That is these folks who have antibodies and have abnormal blood sugars you know, moving from that stage to actually needing insulin. This drug is now uh, in the breakthrough pathway of the FDA to potentially get a label, hopefully sometime this year. Um, it may take a little bit longer, but but ultimately, I think it will get the FDA approval. And then I think our whole field changes, right? And, and that only happened because TrialNet existed and had the ability to do studies in this prevention space. And so the hope is that will accelerate, if anything, more folks to be interested in doing studies in prevention and will ultimately result in more options for our patients and families. And right now, the 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 most recent data on teplizumab in this stage two population is that it seems to be delaying T1D insulin dependence onset up to three years. Mm. And as we continue to follow, as TrialNet continues to follow these people who were dosed with teplizumab over three years ago, hopefully we'll see that a longer and longer extension of of their insulin-free time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I don't know why, but when you say that, like the parent of a maybe a 10-year-old comes to mind who tests positive and, you know, just to think that you could make, at least get them through their teenage year or their early teenage years, if not longer, or delaying the onset of this disease that can be so heavy in a time of their life that's that's already heavy and <laughs> usually full of angst, not for every teenager, but you know what I mean. So yeah, I feel like it's just... I'm just so grateful that these studies exist and that um, this research has shown that there are drugs that can help to delay it and and prevent it. I'm I'm just curious, all the drugs you just mentioned, they're they were previously used for something else, right? One for rheumatoid arthritis. What? Um, none of these are like brand new drugs that are being developed. Is that correct? The irony of of this is the the one that's the brand new drug that doesn't have an FDA label yet for anything is teplizumab or anti-CD3, the drug that um, has been the first to show that it could delay type 1. All the other ones I mentioned are FDA approved for other indications, rheumatoid arthritis, transplant, um, other autoimmune diseases. And so much of what we do in the type 1 space is repurpose existing drugs. And the, the nice part about using those as the pathway forward is actually much faster. Teplizumab um, has been in existence now for 
uh, upwards of 15 years, and it's just taken this long to get the proper studies done, to get uh, the, the right company to have uh, enough faith in it and, and, and being able to get it to the end zone, to get it to where it is. Um, and again, like Frank said, if it, if it wasn't for Toronto's existence, the study that ultimately is going to lead to it possibly getting a label would never have been able to be uh, completed. And you, and you asked here before, is there, are there age limitations? Yeah. There are. Mm-hmm. So certain certain drugs you know, can be given to younger kids versus older kids. And because of the risk profiles, um, that changes things. So you know, uh, galimumab, for example, is approved for kids as young as two. And so we can design, think about the studying studies for uh, designing studies for kids that young. Um, other drugs, because of their side effect profile or the, how they're given, you know, we have to start with slightly older kids. So for teplizumab, for example, if it gets a label, is going to be and kids eight and up to start with. And mm-hmm. so kids younger than that, there are studies planned to check uh, how it might work in them, but but we won't be able to do that from the very beginning. Okay. So a family who decides to enter into one of these clinical trials, of course, if they meet all the qualifications, what are they looking at in terms of time commitment, travel? Because you are at UF, correct? Yes. And go Gators, by the way, I'm a UF <laughs> alumni. What are they? Uh, is the study going on at UF? Is it going on all over the country? Sure. So um, it depends on what you're talking about. So for, for trial net screening, the first part of the process, you know, let's say somebody does T1 detect, their aunt had autoimmune thyroid disease. They're like, you know, I want to check. And so they did it and they come back with antibodies. The the next step would be to screen in trial net. And again, that can be done uh, anywhere in the country via a kit we can send to home, just like you do T1 Detect. Or you can go to a Quest or a LabCorp where we have natural contracts and they can get a blood draw to get a more definitive answer on the antibodies. And we would have them do that anyway as a confirmatory process if if the initial home screen is positive. And then depending on the number of antibodies they have, they would go to a trial net site um, and we have sites all over the U.S. And they would perform some metabolic testing to help us understand if their glucose you know, tolerance is normal or abnormal yet, because that helps us differentiate their risk categorization. And then, depending again on where they fall there, they may or may not be eligible for an open trial yet. And if they are, it largely depends on the specific trial. Mm-hmm. Some are, you know, very intense um, and require follow-up, you know, uh, quite quite regularly. Um, others are much easier to do. So, just for example, the hydroxychloroquine study, you know, is um, an oral agent. It's a, a capsule that you would take daily. You come in for a screening test where we do the metabolic follow-up, uh, and you come back every few months for a follow-up thereafter. I'll I'll just compare that to example what the anti-CD3 or teplizumab prevention study looked like. That drug is a 12 to 14 day IV infusion of drug every single day for you know two weeks essentially, and it's a very significant uh, immunomodulator, immunomodulating immunosuppressive agent. So the risk benefits different, the logistics are, are much much different, and so each study we have to talk about that in depth with the families to help them understand what they may or may not be getting into. And you know reasonable families will have very different decisions on whether or not something is a good choice for them or not, and that's perfectly fine. But um, what we what we really want to emphasize on is is pushing people into the funnel of, of considering the studies in the first point. If everybody out there with type 1 diabetes risk knew, knew it and was even presented the opportunity to be in a study, we'd be light years ahead of where we are now mm-hmm. um, in that we'd have answers to many of the scientific questions mm-hmm. regarding which drugs work and don't work. Um, and so to me, the biggest, the biggest thing we need to do is just get people screened so we can find out what their risk status is. And, and you know, many people will decline participating in studies because you know, studies are hard and they're unknowns and, and they require placebo-controlled trials often. But many other folks will, will you know, take that leap of faith and help us get, um, get us closer to you know, therapies. Mike, can I ask you to describe how people can participate in clinical research or in research without having to take an interventional drug? 
aren't there studies where people can <clears throat> provide just samples that if they are a family member that doesn't have autoantibodies, if they're a family member who does have autoantibodies and they don't want to take an intervention, they can still offer biological samples or, or even patient level data that really is important to, to continuing to drive research forward. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for that question too, Frank. So, so TrialNet has uh, been able to do what we've done because we've largely done what's called the natural history study for the last 15 to 20 years, where we've followed more patients who have risk than we've enrolled in, in prevention studies, to be completely honest. And and but, but why that's so important is that it allows us to help understand what kind of patients are going to progress to get type 1 versus folks who aren't, what that looks like at different ages, how antibody number, titer, and lots of other metabolic factors play into hopefully someday giving us the tools to do personalized medicine and saying, you know, you know, patient X with factors YZ has this exact risk for developing type 1 diabetes under this time frame. We're not quite there, but we're getting much, much closer because of those studies. So even if a family says, you know, no way, I'm not getting any therapeutic that hasn't already been studied in excruciating detail, they can still contribute very meaningfully to the process by participating in those studies. So so yes, that's, that's definitely part of what we do, hmm. both in TrialNet and I should say even at the University of Florida and, and many other centers. We have uh, those kinds of uh, extra studies trying to answer a lot of the questions about just what causes type 1. Hmm. So we, we're always looking for samples. There's not a reason anybody with any connection to type 1 diabetes shouldn't participate in the process uh, in some way. Mm -hmm. um, and you just have to find whichever way that is that you're comfortable with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my daughter was diagnosed last August. So it really hasn't been that long. And I have two other children. So I have not done T1 Detect or TrialNet yet. And my mindset was at first, I just don't want to know. You know, I just, it was just too heavy at the time. But, you know, time has passed a little bit. And I recently read a book called Breakthrough. It has a longer title than that, but I'll probably mess it up. I'll, I'll say it at the end of the show in the outro, but it's called Breakthrough and it's basically about the history of the discovery of insulin. So with Dr. Banting and Best and, you know, at the University of Toronto, and I just, I was so moved by how, I guess, dedicated and motivated and really willing to give up everything that they had in life. I mean, even like family relationships, they were, you know, not saying that that's a good thing, but they just were working so hard to try to discover insulin and what this pancreatic extract was to save people. I mean, they really, they were, people were dragging their children into their offices and daily and just begging for anything. Do you have anything? Have you found anything that could save my child? And, you know, I just think about those researchers and how if they had never had those crazy ideas and worked that hard and pushed through, had they not discovered insulin, where would we be today? And then, of course, the people that were willing to be the first guinea pigs and try insulin to see if it worked. So I guess just over time and through reading that book, I've realized how important it is to, if you can, be a part of research because, you know, who knows? We might, we might not, I might not see a cure for type 1 diabetes in my lifetime, but I believe wholeheartedly that there will be a cure one day, whether it's five years, 10 years from now, 100 years from now. I believe like, there will be a cure, but you can't get to that cure without the research and the clinical trials to to get you to that point. So I'm I'm gonna do it. <laughs> I'm gonna do it. Um, we also have a very strong... well said. We're, we're here to be your biggest cheerleaders, um, and, and your experience is is absolutely um, not uncommon. I think so many parents um, struggle with the decision, you know, to know or not know. We've actually studied this uh, within TrialNet, and sort of stereotypically, some of the things you'd expect is moms have the hardest time with the idea of understanding that they have a kid who might have higher risk. And when you find out that you do, if you're one of the unlucky one in 15, which is the number mm. uh, for a family member 
to have another family member who's high risk by antibodies. It does absolutely increase anxiety, but it's short term. Mm-hmm. And, and within months, it goes back to baseline. And people have a very good understanding of their actual risk thereafter. Uh, moms actually have a better understanding of real risk than dads, interestingly enough. And um, I think the real silver lining is that the data are incredibly strong that for folks who finally get through all that anxiety and do it, if unfortunately they are going to have another kiddo who's going to progress to type one, the experience is entirely different because their risk of DKA goes from still upwards of 30% in the general population for newly diagnosed patients to just less than 2%. And so that's just a completely different process because nobody wishes a second child with diabetes on any family member, but if it's got to happen, it sure is better to be able to do it in a slow process, maybe be eligible for a study, then have your kid in the ICU uh, worried about, you know, DKA and cerebral edema. So, so yeah, I, I encourage you, I'll cheerlead for you. Please, please go get your other kiddos screened. But I, but I also want to acknowledge that it is a scary prospect. The other thing I mentioned is the, the glass is half full. Like even though the risk is high, right? In the US, the risk is about one in 300 of type one diabetes. It's not, not super rare. And one in 15, if you're a family member, that still means 14 out of 15 family members that we screen end up being antibody negative mm-hmm. and they get to be, be a little bit more relieved. And again, it's a one-time screen doesn't mean you're out of the woods, but that's nice information that most families get to have. Mm-hmm. And sorry to interrupt though, but um, I, I want to highlight that you don't, you're not doing this alone when a parent is making this decision and feeling less anxiety. There are people who are there to support you through this. Mm-hmm. TrialNet is chock full of, of people who are willing to talk through this with you, mm-hmm. explain what the risk is, explain the benefits um, of, of screening. Similarly, JDRF is chock full of people who've been through this same situation. They've lived this. So as part of T1 Detect, we have access to, or we offer access to outreach volunteers, mm-hmm. support volunteers, people who've literally made this decision themselves and can explain to you what their experience was like. And if in that situation you are one of the unlucky who has a child that is highly at risk, you'll be taken care of by the doctors, nurses, coordinators at TrialNet, by the staff, the volunteers at JDRF. So this is something that really, I think T1D has a community of support that we want people to avail themselves of. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, I've been blown away by the support in this community. Um, But that's nice to know that if we, if it does show up, you know, there's, there's doctors and people and, you know, teams of people, JDRF included, who have outreach to support those of us that are going through that. That's great. I'm just curious, are there any, other than being in a clinical trial, are there any therapies out there right now that can help delay or prevent the onset of T1D? I'm, I'm assuming no, but so there's there's nothing that's again FDA proven um, that's available to use, and I say this with a little hesitation, as you can probably tell from my voice, but um, <laughs> just to be transparent, you know, we we've had some very nice results using low dose antithymocyte globulin or ATG in new onset trials, and you know part of being a clinician who does science is wanting to be able to translate things to the bedside and actually use them outside of a research uh, entity, and so. You know, after we completed our initial studies with that drug, we had families asking us to prescribe it for them because 
a doctor in the U.S. can prescribe any drug off-label. Lots of times that's done. And and we said no for a very long time. But then we completed the the follow-up large trial net study and confirmed that we had a really nice result. And again, I had families coming asking for that therapeutic when they had newly diagnosed patients, and, and we said no for a long time. But then a couple of years ago, I had a couple of families approach us because they had children who had multiple antibodies, who had dysglycemia, essentially to the point where we knew they were going to develop clinical type 1 diabetes within the next couple of years. Statistically, that would have been the most likely outcome. And most importantly, there was no trial net or other prevention study available to them. And so at that point, I sort of almost felt ethically obligated to see what I could do for them as a physician. Again, not taking off my researcher hat and saying, you know, if I was a parent and somebody came to me and said, help me, Mm -hmm. what tools do you have? Knowing that we had studied ATG well, uh, having very good rationale for why it might work. We ultimately, to make a long story short, uh, treated a couple of patients who were in that sort of risk category. And while the sample size is small and it's not a study, you know, we, we did two of those patients. They're now both two years out from receiving that therapy, and neither one of them have progressed to needing insulin. And so I think it's just, I use it as, uh, I say again, I say it very cautiously, I, I think it's exciting, it's very preliminary, but it does give us hope that these these therapeutics can be translated into clinical care. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was more exciting from a practical point of view for me is that, you know, antithymocyte globulin was approved by their insurance companies. Um, we did it as an outpatient therapy in a pediatric infusion room. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't require hospitalization. You know, so so it's not just an ivory tower or theoretical conversation anymore. Hmm. Uh, and that's part of why I think, you know, moving to this next step of community-based screening programs in collaboration with the research networks like TrailNet is going to be important because it's we are entering a new paradigm where we, we no longer have this, well, if one day we have a therapeutic that works, we absolutely do. You know, teplizumab is hopefully going to get approved at some point, and that's going to change the way we do clinical care and hopefully the way we do research. So, so there are some other options out there on the table. They're definitely off the beaten path options. They're not ones that uh, I go out and recruit patients for, but, but I do have more and more families saying, hey, if there isn't a study for us that we're eligible for, what else you got for me? Um, and so when that happens, I, I bring that up as an option. And the same could be said for any other drugs I mentioned that that are FDA approved. You know, rituximab, abatacept, galimumab, all are FDA approved agents that we've tried to use uh, off-label essentially, but in a research setting, at some point it wouldn't be unreasonable to try to apply those in a clinical setting. That being said, we still need to do the studies and do them right and do placebo-controlled trials to move the science forward. So it, it does put us a little bit um, in a catch-22, um, but that's just the real world we live in, and I think it's important to acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. But those trials are happening right now. Mm-hmm. Those large confirmatory studies are happening right now, mm-hmm. either here in the United States or elsewhere. The Enodia Consortium, which is another T1D-focused large clinical research consortium in Europe, is has just kicked off a lot of these larger studies using a drug like verapamil, which was a, a migraine drug, um, to try and slow disease progression in people recently diagnosed, uh, using a Novartis transplant drug called anti-CD40 ligand, using ATG. So very soon, I think the medical community will, will have a strong enough body of evidence to offer them a toolbox of things that if they want, as Mike, as Mike did himself prescribe off label, but something like what organizations like JDRF are trying to do is to make sure that that body of evidence is big enough and strong enough that it moves towards an actual approval for that drug by either the FDA or the EMA. And that means repeating studies. It means making sure that studies are done are big enough 
to have a definitive answer where in the future we'll be very confident to say, yeah, this drug works to slow disease progression or delay insulin dependence. But we, we do need those studies first. Things like ATG have been tried a couple times with, with similar and very good results. Teplizumab was, was done multiple times with very good, very consistent results. So people feel more, more strongly that those have a good body of evidence is just they're going to help someone. Hmm. I'm just curious. Uh, so you mentioned studies being done overseas. How does the FDA work? So like, let's say there's a study being done in Europe and there's huge amounts of evidence that show that this certain drug is amazing in helping to prevent or delay the onset of T1D. How does that translate into use in the States with the FDA? Can they take that research information and apply it here? That's a great question. Uh, so the short answer is sometimes yes, sometimes no. It depends on how the trials are set up from the beginning. And if the different agencies, the FDA, which is the US version versus the EMA, which is the European version, both agree to the endpoints and the trial design being meaningful enough to give labels. And unfortunately, they don't always agree. Now, there's been examples of where that's been a very good thing for protecting Americans specifically from bad drugs um, that got approved elsewhere. And, and on, the, on the converse, there's many examples where people in the US go, man, they've had this available over there forever. Why don't we have it here? And usually it's because there are real costs involved for these companies to do you know, essentially very similar trials, but with slightly different endpoints because one agency wants it one way than the other. Um, and so that results in not always having the same tools in the toolbox if you live, you know, across the pond, as they say, versus here. But the hope is those things are becoming, as we're much more of a global society, more and more and more coordinated um, to the point where usually uh, you can get to yes. Um, and while the process is a little bit different and you may not exactly have approval the same exact day, ultimately the same trial, the same data can be used to get approval in both places. Hmm, okay. That was my random thought for the day. Well, really, I think that's all the the major questions I have for you guys. I feel like we could keep talking, but those were the major questions I had. Kind of a, hopefully a good intro for everybody on T1 Detect and also trial nut testing and the trial nut studies that are going on. Is Before we sign off, is there anything else that you guys would like to add? I'll make one last plug. Please, everybody, go get screened, whether it's through T1 Detect or through TrialNet um, or both if you got a positive antibody from any other source. Um, mm -hmm. It is our way forward in the type 1 space to learn more and ultimately get to prevention and cure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I agree with Mike on that. And I would just say, if you have questions, reach out to us. Mm -hmm. Reach out to TrialNet. Reach out to JDRF. We're here to answer the questions for you and help you make the decisions that are best for you and your family. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I'm going to link to everything. You know, I'm going to link to the TrialNet website. I'm going to link to the T1 Detect website. Um, anything else you guys want me to link to in the show notes, just let me know. And I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on with me today. I know time is extremely valuable and I just really appreciate it. So thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thanks. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. I want you to know that our TrialNet testing kits just came in the mail, like literally today as I'm recording this outro. So we are ready to get screened. I'm honestly still very nervous, but we have them and I am motivated to get it done. And I would just love to encourage you once again, if you have one child that already has type one and you're wondering if your other children or maybe if you are at risk for developing type one in the future, please, please, please look into T1 Detect and or TrialNet and see what you can do to be a part of the research that hopefully will one day lead to a cure. I will link to both the T1 Detect and the TrialNet websites in the show notes. 
if for whatever reason you can't find the show notes on the podcast player of your choice, then remember they will also be in the show notes that'll be on the website, the Sugar Mamas podcast website. I hope you guys have an absolutely fabulous week and I will chat with you soon. Don't forget next week starts the first episode in the newly diagnosed series. That's going to be a 10 week series for the newly diagnosed. I'm super excited. Talk with you guys soon. Bye.